invite you to go with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to continue our series going through the book of Acts together. And what we've seen as we've journeyed this far in the book of Acts is that Jesus made a promise. And he made a promise to pour out his spirit upon his people. And that this empowering, this outpouring of his spirit would cause such power to come upon his people that his people would be able to take the message of the gospel not only in Jerusalem but beyond to Judea, Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And where we pick up the story is that this has been happening. The gospel has been advancing through the power of God's spirit. Mighty things have been done. Churches have been started and planted. Whole communities have come to faith in Christ. Families set free from darkness and bondage. It is the work of Christ through his church. And here where we are in Acts 19, Paul is ministering in Ephesus, which was the capital city, if you will, of the whole region of what's called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Paul spent about three years in this city ministering, planting a church, sending out ministers and missionaries to the surrounding region so that by the end of his three years there, the whole place was totally transformed. The whole region had at least heard the gospel message. And so we pick up this story here in in the the middle of Paul's ministry in this city of Ephesus. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, Paul also wrote to these church to this church after he left them, and that in your Bible is called the Book of Ephesians. And so you could read the Book of Ephesians along with Acts chapter 19. It would give you a better uh, picture of of who the Ephesians were and and what they were dealing with in their city. We're not going to read the whole Book of Ephesians this morning. Oh, I was hoping for an awe there, but. <laughs> Everyone was like, yep, that sounds pretty good. We're not going to do that. So anyway, uh, at the center of the town were were two uh, landmarks, two important places uh, for the Ephesians. It's a large city, multicultural city. About 250,000 people live in this city. And at the center of the town was this temple to the goddess Artemis. I showed you a picture of this last week. I want to remind you of it again, as this is going to become important in our text today. It was the worship of this goddess of, um, we'll just call it physical pleasure, sensuality, and the massive temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, these 167 marble columns, each 60 feet high, two and a half, uh, 50% larger than a, f- a football field, massive, massive place, the center of, of the worship of this goddess Artemis. For the whole world, people from all over the known world would travel there to uh, worship in this temple and worship the idolatry that was happening there. And then also in the town was this massive amphitheater that could seat up to 25,000 people in the city of Ephesus. And again, for scale, our AT&T Center where the Spurs play can seat 18,581 people. So they could cram more people into their theater than we could cram into our AT&T Center. Now I show you both of those pictures because uh, both of those places play an important part in our story today from Acts chapter 18. Let's pray and then we'll jump right into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. 
It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we deal with the issues uh, in your word today, I pray that your spirit would deal with us. Lord, as we read your word today, Lord, that you would read us and read our hearts and help us, God. You are our helper in a, in a time of need. You're always there with us. Lord, we are a needy people. Help us, Lord, to not, not just get by, but, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be, to accomplish the purpose you have for us. Lord, the great destiny that you have for each one of us. Lord, we, we look to you for help in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 21, it says, After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go and see Rome. And so he sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul decides after he leaves Ephesus, He's going to make another trip around through Macedonia, visiting the churches that he started in Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens. He's going to go through that region again, back to Jerusalem, and then from there he has plans to go to the capital city of Rome to preach the gospel. So he sends Timothy and his helper along uh, to go and get the people ready to receive Paul as he's about to come to them. And it says, about that time there also arose no little disturbance concerning the way the way, of course, is what Christianity was called at this time, most likely taken from the lips of the Lord Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Luke here tells us that there was no little disturbance that arose. That's Luke's way of saying a very big disturbance arose. From a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. And he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So, again, this is Luke's way of saying that there was a lot of business around making of these shrines for the goddess Artemis. Now, I could, again, I could show you a picture of this, but because we have small children with us, I do not want to show you a picture of the shrines or the idols that they made because they are very explicit in nature. So this is, this is very dark work that these men are engaged in creating idols or shrines of Artemis to be sold as people came and visited the temple. And the silversmith Demetrius gets all of the, uh, the craftsmen together and he says that he, he gathers them for a meeting and he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They became very wealthy in, in this as people from all over the world would come to Ephesus to worship in the temple and they were there uh, running the, so to speak, uh, temple gift shop uh, as you exit, you know, exit through the gift shop and pick up your own little idol and take it back to your home. And, hey, you can continue the experience once you get home. Set up a little idol, a shrine in your house and continue to worship God or worship this idol there. And so that's what they would do. And they became very wealthy doing that. How many of you ever been to... Uh, you know, some sort of tourist place and you have to exit through the gift shop. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, and so, and everything in the gift shop is like 10 times its normal price, right? For whatever reason. And so that's what they're doing there. These aren't people that believe in Artemis. They're not 
devoted to her in any kind of religious capacity. They simply have gotten rich off of selling those little idols. But, he says, this is why I called the meeting. He says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Of course, Paul would go and say, listen, you're worshiping this little idol. Do you really think this idol created heaven and earth? Of course not. This guy's the one that made the idol. How could that be God? There is one true and living God, and he is the creator of everyone and everything, and he has sent his son Jesus into the world to make a way of salvation for all who would believe in him. So Paul is proclaiming this message that is against idolatry and turning people to worshiping the true and the living God, and they're leaving their idolatry behind them, as you must if you will follow God. And so this is impacting their bottom line. They're, they're not bringing in as much money as they once had. And he says there is danger, verse 27, that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So they found these associates of Paul. They drug them into this huge theater. This whole huge riot breaks out in the city. People pour into the theater with this chaotic situation, the whole city in an uproar. They grab some of Paul's companions and take them in there. Verse 30 says... Paul wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him go. And even some of the Azarchs, who were friends of his, those are leaders of the region, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Well, of course, we know if Paul would have gone in there, it would have been very bad for him. An angry mob, 25,000 people, Angry at Paul, they would have most likely torn him limb from limb. So they're restraining him, they're urging him, do not go into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the crowd, the town clerk, this is like the mayor, he came in and he quieted down the crowd. And this is the speech he made. He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls, there are judges. 
Let them bring charges against one another. He's saying if there's a problem, go about it through the normal justice system. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The Ephesians, of course, were in great danger of the Roman army descending upon them and putting all of this to a big stop and occupying them with force and it being a very bad thing. And so the mayor stands up and says, listen, what we're doing here is wrong. What we're doing here is illegal. If you want to bring a charge against them, go about it the right and normal way. Now, there's a couple of things in this passage that I really want to draw our attention to. And the first is with this issue of idolatry, this issue of idolatry. This is something that is so important that we understand what idolatry is and that we can even recognize that there are possibly potential places in our lives where idolatry can creep in as well. And so if you have your Bibles, flip back with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus, the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where the Lord God gives his law to his people after he's delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And Exodus 20 starts with the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses for his people to live by. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment that God gives to his people. Number one, no other gods before him. The second commandment he gives is similar. He says, you shall, make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is, under, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, idolatry wasn't just a problem in Paul's day or in Moses' day. Idolatry is just as present and prevalent in our day as it was in the past. It just looks different. People might not build shrines in their house and bow down to idols and graven images. But let me assure you that the sin of idolatry is certainly alive in our world today. And herein lies a little bit of the problem because we come to stories like this and we read what God told his people in the wilderness in Exodus 20 and we say, well, I don't worship idols, so I'm good. I don't have a shrine in my house. 
don't bow down to a little idol. I'm, I'm good. I, I'm okay. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Idolatry is not simply bowing down and worshiping a statue. It, that is part of idolatry, but that is not the whole picture of what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you look to something or someone else other than God to meet or satisfy your needs. Idolatry is looking to something or someone else other than God to meet or to satisfy your needs. That is what idolatry is. And we look at, if we look at the silversmith and Demetrius and the people that were making these idols, if we look in verse 25, we find out what their true idol was. When they gathered together, they said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And that Paul is persuading people all over Asia to turn away from buying the God's that we make. Their idol wasn't Artemis. Their idol that they worshipped, the silversmiths, it wasn't these little statues. Their idol was wealth and power. That is what they worshipped. That was their number one in their life. God says, nothing else before me. Nothing else. No other person, no other thing before me. And if we put anything in our life at that number one spot, whatever it is, it becomes an idol in our life. It becomes an idol in our life. If we look to anyone or anything else to meet our needs, it can become an idol. Now, we're a needy people. We all have so many needs. Just as human beings living life, we have all kinds of, of needs, even basic needs like food and water and shelter and fast Wi-Fi. You know, we have these needs that are very important. Safety and security. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure. Beyond our basic needs, we have psychological needs of, of community, of, of needing to be in relationships and friendships, of of mutual expression of love and care and, and, and giving of oneself to one another, of intimacy, of acceptance, of recognition, of appreciation. We have needs of fulfillment where we want our lives to matter. We want to engage in something that is worthwhile. And, and then at the top of all of our needs is the, the great need that we have for salvation. Salvation. That need, of course, can only be met through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved except through Jesus, our greatest need. But when I look to anyone or anything else other than God to, to be the, the source or supply of my needs, the thing that I'm looking to becomes my functional Savior, becomes what I'm looking for to meet my needs. It becomes my, my savior. Some people, of course, they look to themselves, their own strength, their own ability, their own 
ingenuity, their, their own gifts and talents and abilities, and, and they look to themselves to, to meet and to supply all of their needs. Some people look to, to things and to stuff to, to satisfy that, that, that need, that longing that's in all of our hearts as people. You see, all of us were created with the capacity and the purpose to know God, to know our Creator, to have a, a real and true and genuine relationship with our Creator God. Of course, sin has brought separation to all of us, brought separation between us and God. And it's through faith in Christ that our sins are forgiven, that our relationship with God is restored, fellowship with God restored, and we can know God. But so many people, devoid of forgiveness of sins, lost, not having any kind of relationship with God, they look to other things to fill that void and to meet those needs. And when that happens, those things become idols. And what we need to be, we, we as God's people, we need to be very careful that we too don't let other things become what we look to to meet our needs. But we hear things like this all the time and and maybe you've even thought things like this and said things like this, but if I could only get this job, then everything would be okay. I, I would finally be happy. Or if I could only get this promotion, or if I could only get this position, or if I could only attain this certain level, then, then I would be happy and everything would be okay. That, that thing, of course, is becoming an idol. Because that thing, whatever it is, that position or that raise or that job, of course it cannot meet and supply all of your needs. People say things like, well, if I could only find the right spouse, then, then, then finally I would be happy. If I could only find that Proverbs 31 woman, she would meet all of my needs. Or for the ladies, if I could only find my Boaz, right? Then my needs would be met. Then I would be happy. Then my life would finally have a purpose. Let me tell you that the Bible does say that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a wonderful thing. The Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives blessing from the Lord. I have found a wife. I, have, I love my wife. She is the best wife I've ever had. She is amazing. She's amazing. She's the only wife I've, I've ever had. She's the only wife I'll ever have. She's a wonderful wife. I have found a good thing. I've received blessing from the Lord. But she's a terrible savior. She's a horrible savior. She can't save me. And if I, if I look to her... To, to be the be-all, end-all of satisfying me in my life, I will always be disappointed. I cannot place on her a burden that she was never designed to carry, that Jesus himself can fill and fulfill. And, and likewise, the same for her. I think I'm an okay husband. I have my moments of triumph and moments of failure like we all do. 
But if she looks to me to meet all of her needs, guess what? She's going to be woefully disappointed. That would become an idol in her life. And, and so many marriages are destroyed and so many relationships are destroyed because Christians even are practicing functional idolatry, expecting their spouse to meet all of their needs when it's God we look to as our source and our supply. People say things like, well, if I could only have kids, then all of my needs, would, then, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied and fulfilled in life. And all the parents say, yeah, right. <laughs> kids are wonderful. They're a blessing from the Lord. But they are not the be-all, end-all of a fulfilled life. People look to things and to stuff to satisfy their needs. That's the, that's the great religion of the United States of America, materialism. Materialism. Well, if I could get the better car or the better house, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied, then, then I would have contentment and peace. Or if, if I could, then I, you, know, you get into that and it's like, well, then I need the bigger house and I need the bigger car and... I need the, the vacation house, and I, I need the, the lake house, and then I need the RV and the boat and the jet skis. And, and listen, I'm pro-RV, I'm pro-boat, I'm pro-jet ski. Don't get me wrong. Those things are wonderful. And if you have those things, you should be inviting your pastor to, to share and, and enjoy them with you. But, but, but those are not the be-all, end-all of living a fulfilled and satisfied life. We cannot allow anything to take that number one spot. It has to be Christ. It has to be Christ. We must look to God as our source, as, as our supply. Philippians 4.19 says, And God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. And I, I would submit to you that we have a lot more things in the need column that really should belong in the want column. Amen. Amen. We need a lot less than we think we actually need. God promises to supply all of our needs, not all of our wants. And desires, which are idols, can become idols. We, we cannot fall in love with the stuff of this world that is temporary, that is passing away, that is not eternal. We look to God who gives us all of our needs, promises to supply all of our needs. I watched a YouTube video recently where this guy was so in love with his car that he married it. He, he would kiss it and like take care of it so immaculately. His whole identity was wrapped up in this vehicle. And it wasn't even that nice of a car. It was like a 1992 Ford Taurus. And listen, if you drive a 92 Taurus, that's awesome. But don't marry it, okay? 
this guy would like cover it up at night. He would sleep with it. He would kiss it. Listen, thankfully, none of us are that far gone. I, I hope, I hope you're not doing that. Listen, if you're kissing your car, stop it. That's just weird. People become so enamored with, with stuff. You can look it up on YouTube, Guy Mary's Car. It's really bizarre. <laughs> we don't look to stuff to save us. Material possessions, they're all fleeting. They're, they, they pass away. If you have your Bibles, flip over with me to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus here speaking about these very things, instructing our hearts. And again, when we come to passages like this, I, I know it can be uncomfortable because I'm, I'm asking you to look and to examine the, the, really the deepest places of your soul and, and what has the affection of your heart and, and what are you looking to for satisfaction. I know that these are, are not things that are, are commonplace in our culture to think about and to evaluate, but, but God calls his people to think on these things and to dwell on these things because they matter to him and they should matter to us. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus speaking. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, that's the point. That's what God cares about. God doesn't care about stuff. Stuff doesn't matter to God. God owns everything. He owns everything. He's the creator of everyone. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of the universe. God owns everything. All your stuff is actually God's stuff. He's just letting you use it. We're supposed to be good stewards of what he entrusts to us. The reason God cares and is talking about possessions and wealth and money, it's not because God cares about money, it's because God cares about our hearts. And God says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's about the heart. It's not about the money. It's not about the stuff that he cares about. Verse 22, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. He's talking about what you behold, what you look at, what you focus on, what you set your affections towards, the, the things that you pay attention to, the things that you focus on in life will be where your heart goes, he says. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If, if you're looking at the right things, if you're paying attention to the right things, if you have the right priorities in your life as far as your time and your focus and your energy and your affections, that you're going to live a life full of the light of God. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, if, if you only look at the, the, the things of the world and, and what the world has to offer and what the world serves up as important and, and a priority, and if you're, you're following after that pattern of thinking of the world, Jesus says you're going to live a life that is full of darkness. 
Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You have to make a decision. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money, possessions, wealth, materialism? And again, materialism is the religion of our country. There's there's no doubt about it. We, We judge people on their material possessions. We judge people by the kind of car they wear, the kind of car they, car they wear. You must have a little car or a big body if you're wearing a car. But anyway, we judge people by the car they drive and the clothes that they wear. We judge people by the type of home that they live in, by how much money that they make. This is how our culture and our society ranks people. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's idolatrous. Everything that's idolatrous is demonic. That way of thinking has its origins in satanic, demonic thinking. A person's value is not determined by their net worth. Amen. Can I get an amen? I should be able to get an amen from you guys on that. Amen. A person's value is not determined by the car that they drive or the clothes that they wear or the part of of town that they live on, how they grew up what language or culture they're a part of. None of these external factors, a person's value and worth is determined by the fact that they are created in the image of the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful creator God. That is what determines a person's value. Therefore, we all have equal value and equal worth in the eyes of God, whose are the only eyes that matter in this. So who will you serve? Will you serve God or will you serve the God of this age, materialism, wealth, and money? If you make money your God, you will be full of darkness. You, You will live a life full of anxiety and worry. And so Jesus begins to talk about this. Verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What a profound thought. All the worrying in the world will not add one hour to your life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now, if Jesus lived in San Antonio, he'd say, consider the blue bonnets. (laughs) Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. When Jesus here says the Gentiles seek after these things, he's talking, he's saying, he's contrasting that with the people of God. He's saying the people of the world, this is their idol. This is what they're seeking. This is what they're looking after. This is what they think will bring them satisfaction and life. And so they're pursuing these things. But he says, we're not like that as God's people. We're not like the Gentiles. We're not like the world. We don't think like the world. We don't have the same value system as the world. We understand that these things are nice. They're good gifts. We receive them from God with joy into our lives. But they're temporary. They're not eternal. They don't last. And so Jesus says, instead of seeking after these things, we should first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus, the words of our Lord are to seek first the kingdom of God. That, that God and his righteousness and and our relationship to him and, and living as his people, that this is the number one priority for the people of God. That God has to be on the throne of our hearts, that he has to be what we're focusing on, that he has to be what has our affection, that we're the most passionate about, that we care the most about, not anyone or anything else other than God. To seek first his kingdom. You know, the year we've been through, 2020, is a, it's an amazing year. It's a year like none, none other. It's a year we'll never forget. It's culminating in this political season and all of this unrest with the election. And what we see in the world is that the world has made idols out of political parties. The world has made idols out of politicians where they think that these people will solve all of our problems. They look to the government or a political party or a politician to meet their needs and to supply for them. That's idolatry. We as Christians cannot fall into that same trap that our culture and world is in. Looking to politicians and governments and political parties as our source and as our supply. That's what the world does but we're not part of the world. That's how the world thinks, but we don't think like the world. But let me tell you that the world is moving and has moved in that direction with, with such force, such a tidal wave of that. To not be swept up in that will take an intense amount of focus and determination on your part, personally. To not be swept away in the tides of the culture of materialism, of idolatry around politics, of all of the things that our world is, is so focused on, for you to not be swept away in that will take an intense amount of dedication and focus and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because if you're just going through life in 2020 in a casual way, without purposefulness and intentionality about the things that you watch and the things that you listen to, the, the light that you're taking into yourself, you will be swept away because the, the tide and the forces behind it are so powerful. If you just kick it into neutral, you're going to get swept away the way that the world is moving. 
But we as God's people are commanded by our God to not worry about these things. He doesn't say that they're not important, but what he does say is to seek first the kingdom of God. So what does that look like? Let me tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like you getting up and the first thing you do in the morning is turn on the news. That's not seeking first the kingdom. That's seeking first the kingdom of this world and what's happening in the world. To begin to fill your soul with what's happening in the world before you even connect with your creator God. That's not seeking first the kingdom. Seeking first the kingdom is waking up and and spending some time with the Lord first. Acknowledging his place in your life as God, as your source, thanking him for another day of life, thanking him for breath, thanking him for strength, thanking him for supplying your needs for the day, asking for his wisdom as you move about the day that you would live in his power and for the purpose for which he's created you. That's seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying you have to get up at four in the morning and spend two hours on your knees in prayer. I'm not saying that. If you do want to do that, put me at the top of your prayer list. Thank you. But what I am saying is that we should start our day. If we're going to first seek the kingdom, we should do it. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't do this, you're going to lose your salvation or that you're saved by your works of doing this. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not laying in front of you some sort of legalistic hoop that you have to jump through to earn favor with God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, as God's people, who he has saved, who he has redeemed, who he has called out of the world, who he has filled with his spirit, his instruction to us is, no other gods before me. His instruction to us is, Seek first my kingdom and righteousness. Already saved, already forgiven, walking in grace, we must seek first the kingdom of God. This is what God's people are to be about. Amen. And a great way to find the idols in your life is to ask yourself this question. Is there any place in my life where I am unwilling to submit to the word of God. Is there any place in my life where I am unwilling to submit to the word of God? If there is, guess what? You just found your idol. You just found your idol. And to be set free from your idolatry, you must repent of that sin. You must turn from it. And with the power of the Spirit, you walk in the new life that Jesus has given us, not in bondage to the things of this world. If you ask yourself the question, where am I unwilling to submit to the Word of God? I believe the Holy Spirit will show you. And then through the power of the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Amen. All of us have, at some level, this idol that we have to fight with every day.
called the idol of self. The idol of self. Where we, we want to be the center of everything. We, we want all of our needs met. We care about us, me, myself, and I. You know, the unholy trinity of being human, me, myself, and I. And we don't seek first God's kingdom. We seek first our kingdom. We don't live our lives to, to, to love and to serve others. We want others to love and to serve us. That's just part of the human experience. But we must lay that idol of self down if we truly are going to obey our Lord to seek first his kingdom and to have no other gods before him. What I love as we look at this story we see what was happening, this in, insane riot that was taking place. The Apostle Paul, what does he want to do? He wants to run in there in the midst of this crowd that wants to kill him. And he wants to stand on that stage and he wants to preach the gospel. He doesn't care what's going to happen to him. That's not what he cares about. Because he has turned away from the idol of self. He knows it's not about him. He knows it's not about him or his glory. He is living for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he is not even afraid of death because he has the fear of God in his life. And he wants to obey his Lord. He's restrained by the people that love him who say, you can't do that. They'll rip you to shreds. God uses them to preserve his life because it wasn't Paul's time yet to go meet his maker. But for all of us who are here today, I know this is not an easy message. I know that this really kind of gets to the heart of who we are and how we live our lives and, and what we value. But if we're going to make an impact in our world, if, if we're going to see our city turned to Christ the way that Paul saw Ephesus turn to Christ. If we're going to see people so set free of their bondage that, that the idolatry of their day lost business. If, if In our day, it would be like if all the strip clubs and all the bars and all the adult video stores went out of business because there's no longer any clientele. How amazing would that be? But let me tell you, that's only going to happen when God's people first get rid of their idolatry. It starts with us. The Bible says repentance starts at the house of the Lord. If we're going to expect our culture, our, 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 our world to repent, if there's going to be any kind of revival in our land, it's going to start with the people of God. It's going to start with people getting real about the way that they they, they, they walk with the Lord, getting serious about their faith. Not just a casual faith, not just a Sunday faith, not just a once a week, open the book, come hear the guy preach, but an ever-present, real, vibrant relationship with God, seeking first the kingdom all day, every day. That's what will turn a city upside down for the Lord. Because when we don't care about ourselves, we don't care about how we look, we don't care about what people are going to think about us, we are set free to be the ambassadors for Christ that we're called to be. And those are the kind of people, like Paul, 
that God can use to turn a city upside down. I invite you to stand with me this morning. Father, as we come to your word, Lord, there's so many areas that we have where we can improve. Not to earn your favor, Lord, you have shown us favor in the face of your son, Jesus. Unmerited favor, the grace of God. We can't earn it. You've already bestowed it upon us. Not to earn your favor, but to live as you've called us to live, to have the impact that you've called us to have. Lord, we'll never make a difference in our world if we live like the world, think like the world, and act like the world. But you've called us out. You've given us your word. You've filled us with your spirit. Lord, I thank you for each person that's here today. I thank you for the way that you're moving and that you're working in their heart and in their life. Lord, I thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation, but that you do bring conviction of sin in our life. And so, Lord, where you are convicting us right now, we humble ourselves. We repent. We ask for your forgiveness. We turn from the idols. We put our faith, our hope, our trust in you, the only one that can save, the only one that can satisfy. We look to you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, God, to live as your people in this hour, to arise as the church, to be the lights shining in this dark world, to shine forth not our own glory, our own name, but to shine forth for you. Lord, give us opportunities this week to share you, to share our faith, to be a blessing to others, to love and to serve and to give. In the name of Christ, it's in that beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap this morning.